From the Greenhouse, it's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 62. And on paper, it's really surprising that I'm not an alcoholic. Because I love alcoholic beverages. I love the beauty and the artisanship of them. I love the rituals of buying and opening and consuming the bottles, or the contents of the bottles, rather. I like how the drinks taste. I love how they make me feel. Me, a person who struggles with anxiety, particularly social anxiety. Me, a person who cannot moderate. person who takes everything to extremes. A person who can either do stuff like 10,000% or not at all. Me, a person with a demonstrated lifelong pattern of seeking out mind and mood-altering substances and self-administering those substances to extremes. We're talking about me here. And I definitely drink too much sometimes, but that is not the same thing as being an alcoholic. Anyone who has been around true alcoholism knows that it is an entirely different phenomenon. And the reason I'm not an alcoholic might be because I am genetically protected from it. Or I could be. Alcoholism is, by far, the most studied chemical addiction, and scientists who study it generally come to the conclusion that alcoholism is the result of roughly 50% environmental factors, meaning poverty, trauma, stress, etc. Alcohol provides a temporary state of euphoria, which is particularly craved by people who have few other sources of happiness in their lives. Alcohol can temporarily reduce stress and socially disinhibit you, temporarily useful for people who are uncomfortable around other people, for whatever reason. Mm. Indeed, you may have seen in the news last week a new study out of Boston published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. This study indicates that moderate drinking may alter the stress-related neural network in your brain, and that effect actually lowers your risk of heart attack or stroke. In fact, the protective effect these scientists observed was double in people with a history of anxiety disorders. Now, basically, the whole rest of the scientific community rushed forward to criticize this paper, not really for its methods or for its design or anything, but for how this paper has been presented to the general public. Because the balance of evidence and expert opinion states that no amount of alcohol is good for you, and the net effect of any alcohol consumption is to shorten your life. That observation is not in conflict with this new study about stress, assuming that you know how to read scientific literature better than your typical 20-something working at a content mill, clacking away on a quick write-up of this study for some general interest publication's Twitter feed. It may be that alcohol protects you a bit from major cardiovascular events by rewiring the parts of your brain that process stress. 
We also know alcohol is protective in some other ways. Moderate drinking has been found to increase HDL cholesterol, the good kind, and moderate drinking has been shown to lower concentrations of a clotting protein found in blood called fibrinogen. So that may help to protect moderate drinkers from thrombosis because light drinking makes your blood a little less likely to clot. But at the same time, alcohol does lots of other stuff to you that increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and just about every other non-communicable disease and probably some of the communicable ones too. Alcohol raises your blood pressure it gives you cardiomyopathy, all kinds of horrible things. Scientists used to think that moderate drinking might actually help people live longer because moderate drinkers do actually seem to live longer than comparable heavy drinkers or non-drinkers. But lots more recent scholarship comes to the conclusion that this effect is probably mostly incidental because the kind of people who go out and have a drink with friends and family a couple of times a week, those kinds of people have other things going for them like money and social support networks that help them to live longer than everybody else. So it's not really the alcohol itself that's extending their lives. Also, you have to be careful when you study this to purge all of the former drinkers out of your non-drinker study group, because if you're studying the effect of alcohol in a drinking country, like a Western country, lots of the people who drink zero alcohol here are actually recovering alcoholics who have done permanent damage to their bodies already. We have a whole podcast episode on the correlations between moderate drinking and longevity. But the clear majority scientific opinion these days is that any health benefits conferred by moderate drinking are outweighed by the harms. That doesn't stop me from drinking because my goal is not to live the longest life possible. Life is about making choices between competing interests. And I'm interested in this. Hmm. God, Scotch. I like alcohol so much that I really think I should have more of a drinking problem than I do. I have hardly any drinking problem at all. My tiny drinking problem is that I sometimes get in the habit of drinking a little too much, a little too often. But very rarely do I drink way too much. And I suspect that I am genetically protected from drinking way too much. Scientists who study this stuff generally come to the conclusion that the recipe for alcoholism is about 50% environmental factors and 50% genetic factors. How do they know this? How can they disentangle nature from nurture? Well, one of the oldest and easiest methods is to study siblings, or better yet, twins. Identical twins are near-genetic copies of each other. They're not totally the same. For example, identical twins have different fingerprints. They are, there are always significant mutations unique to each individual, always, but you will not find two more genetically similar people than a pair of identical twins. And you can learn a lot by seeking out and studying twins. 
if one twin grows up to be an alcoholic, what are the odds that a genetically near-identical person will also grow up to be an alcoholic? You can study siblings of all kinds who get raised in totally different families, i.e. siblings and perhaps even twins who get separated very early in their life and are raised in totally different households. Same nature, different nurture. At least partially different nurture. Unless they were conceived in vitro, all twins shared a womb, and lots of important stuff happens in those nine months. You can also compare biologically unrelated people who grew up in the same household. Step-siblings, half-siblings, siblings where at least one is adopted, etc. If two unrelated kids grow up in the same household, what are the odds they both grow up to be alcoholics? How do those odds compare to those we see among unrelated people who don't grow up together? If you want to see the research, which goes back decades and decades and decades, just go to Google Scholar, search twin study or adoption study and alcoholism. The clear picture presented by all of that very old school work and some new school work using Mendelian randomization and other more fancy tools, the clear picture is that alcoholism definitely runs in families, though genetics are only about 50% effective as a predictor of alcoholism. Meanwhile, social and other life factors also seem to be only about 50% effective as a predictor of alcoholism. So people figure it's roughly a 50-50 mix. If you grow up with alcoholic parents, you're about four times more likely to become an alcoholic yourself. And you have some kind of elevated risk, even if you were adopted and your birth parents are not alcoholics. Inversely, if both of your birth parents were alcoholics, but you got adopted into a, like a totally teetotaling family, you still have an elevated risk of becoming an alcoholic yourself. Even if you have never had anything to do with your birth parents your whole life, their genes are in you. There is no one gene associated with alcoholism. Alcoholism is a very complex, multifactorial disease. But if there was one or two genes primarily associated with alcoholism, here they are. There's two of them, two big ones. And I will tell you about them right after I thank Masterworks, sponsor of this episode. Check them out at masterworks.art slash Believe it or not, the research shows that a higher income leads to more alcohol consumption, not less. Lower incomes are more strongly associated with alcohol abuse. But if you look at all kinds of drinking, it goes up with the amount of money you make. Not surprisingly, richer people also spend more money on health care. And that's a lifestyle that too few people can afford nowadays. Even among Americans making six figures, just over half report living paycheck to paycheck. Back before YouTube, I had a really good five-figure job with benefits in a cheap city, and I was still living paycheck to paycheck because families are expensive. 
Investment losses ran up into the trillions last year. Luckily, there are always places that you can uh, try to get ahead. Even in 2022, one market had a record-breaking year, passing its pre-pandemic highs. It's the same market you can access in minutes without needing millions of dollars in investment capital. I'm talking, of course, about Masterworks art investing platform. Masterworks has sold over $45 million in art, real fine art, not nonsense NFTs or whatever. They've sold millions in fine art with the proceeds going straight to investors like you and me. That's not a one-off. Every Masterworks exit to date has returned a profit. Total of 13 successful exits, eight of them occurring since Masterworks first started supporting the Ragusea pod. With over 740,000 users, Masterworks offerings have sold out in minutes, but you can get priority access with my link in the description, which is masterworks.art slash Past performance does not guarantee future success, but check out Masterworks. See if this is the right portfolio diversification option for you. That's masterworks.art slash Ragusea. Thank you, Masterworks. Anyway, these are the two big genes most strongly correlated with alcoholism in the literature. ADH1B and ALDH2. These are two genes that effectively tell our bodies how to metabolize alcohol. Hey, what even is metabolism? Well, like many scientific words we use, it's a Greek word that some 19th century guy reached for when looking for a word to describe a thing that he had noticed. Metabolism comes from the Greek word metabolo. No, it'd be metabola. Yeah, metabola meaning a change. Metabolism is when your body takes one of the chemical substances contained within your body and it changes that substance in such a way as to release energy. Your body breaks down chemicals and biosynthesizes new ones all the time for all kinds of purposes. We call it metabolism specifically when your body is changing a chemical for the purposes of accessing energy takes a lot of energy to forge chemical bonds, and you can release that energy by breaking the bonds, like breaking apart two objects with a coiled spring between them. That's how your body converts chemical energy into thermal energy or kinetic energy. That's how my body is accessing the energy that is powering the movement of my lips and tongue and throat and lungs and heartbeat and everything else right now. Somewhere, some plant used solar energy to convert CO2 into carbs and fats that I ate a couple hours ago, and now the cells in my body are breaking those much more complex molecules back down again, releasing that original solar energy to power my movements. And the waste product I breathe out is what now? CO2. You got it. I am depositing CO2 into my greenhouse where I am recording this podcast today. Sorry if I sound a little too reverberant today. I just think the greenhouse looks really nice for those watching on home video. And I like spending time in here. And it's really easy to set up camera and lights and stuff in here. So I am spewing CO2 into the greenhouse air. 
my plants will suck that CO2 up and use the power of the sun to make more sugars that I may eat. And it's the circle of life. These two genes I mentioned, ADH1B and ALDH2, these genes encode instructions for metabolizing alcohol. Alcohol is a chemical energy store, just like sugar. We manufacture alcohol by fermenting sugar. You can burn alcohol just like any other fuel, and we do. The ethanol used as a gasoline additive here in the United States is just normal alcohol. Ethanol is the scientific name for the particular kind of alcohol that we drink. It's the same kind that goes in the gas tank. Booze is energy. Booze has calories, seven calories per gram, which is less than fats, but more than carbs. So when somebody tries to tell you that a drink is low calorie because it has zero carbs, tell them you know better. Alcohol itself has lots of calories. Mm. When you ingest alcohol, most of it gets metabolized in your liver. You make enzymes that help oxidize the ethanol and change it. One such enzyme is called alcohol dehydrogenase 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 let's go with alcohol dehydrogenase adh that should sound familiar and another is called aldehyde dehydrogenase aldh which should also sound familiar the two genes we're talking about that are implicated in alcoholism these are the two genes that tell your body to make these two enzymes and remember that enzymes are proteins that we use for jobs other than being a building block of some tissue. Enzymes are proteins generally used to catalyze biochemical processes like metabolism. When the ADH enzyme comes into contact with alcohol, ethanol, the booze converts into acetaldehyde, a highly toxic chemical with a recognizable fruity aroma. Indeed, one reason why ripe fruit smells fruity is because it has a little acetaldehyde in it. Acetaldehyde is a known carcinogen, and it's one of the reasons drinking gives you cancer. It's one of the reasons you get hangovers when you drink. Acetaldehyde is nasty stuff, which is probably why your body also evolved to make this ALDH enzyme encoded by this ALDH2 gene, which is on chromosome 12, if you want to know, ALDH oxidizes acetaldehyde into acetate. And acetate is a salt of acetic acid, vinegar. Acetate may also contribute to hangovers, but it is also not super dangerous at normal levels in your body. Indeed, your body needs acetate and uses it for all kinds of things, including burning it as fuel. Acetate goes through some more conversions, and then ultimately it enters the citric acid cycle to provide energy to your cells. And the final waste products that you pee slash breathe out are carbon dioxide, 
and water, both of which you can use to feed a plant that will gather solar energy and use it to, to convert those waste products into sugars that you can ferment into alcohol and the circle of life, etc. Mm. Indeed, some amount of bacterial and fungal fermentation of sugars happens right inside your body, in your gut, resulting in ethanol that you absorb into your bloodstream. That's probably one reason why you evolved these enzymes for processing ethanol. You need them whether you drink or not, because there's ethanol in your body right now, whether you drink or not. You may have heard of autobrewery syndrome, ABS. This is when your gut microbiome makes so much ethanol that you get noticeably drunk simply by eating carbohydrates. That's a thing that happens to some people, and it's probably a lot less fun than it sounds. One risk factor for that syndrome is there's something wrong with your liver enzymes. They generally figure that a normal, healthy adult can metabolize about one standard drink an hour, which is something that contains about 14 grams of pure ethanol. That's a standard drink. And a normal grown-up can metabolize about one an hour. That means that if you are such a person and you do have one drink and only one drink an hour, you will either feel not intoxicated at all or you will feel a little intoxicated, a little buzzed, but the buzz won't grow and accumulate into full-on sloppy drunkenness if you keep it to one drink an hour or thereabouts. A normal body can metabolize and ultimately eliminate a drink an hour. If you drink faster than that, if you exceed the rate at which these enzymes can do their thing, Ethanol and ethanol metabolites will build up in your bloodstream, and that's when everything goes haywire. Anybody can drink themselves to death if they really try. But certain people are much more likely than others to drink way too much, and these enzymes may help explain why. Here's the most famous example. Asians. You may have an idea in your head that Asian people drink a lot. And indeed, a lot of them do drink a lot. Alcohol is extremely popular in East Asia. But at the same time, full-blown alcoholism actually tends to be a lot lower among Asian people, depending on how you count it and where you count it. There are places in Asia where alcohol abuse is extremely prevalent, but usually you can point to a social explanation for that, like Japanese corporate culture, where managers try to foster esprit de corps by taking their team out drinking every night, and there is enormous social pressure to go and get as sloppy drunk as your boss. If your boss is drunk and you're not, that means you have him at a disadvantage. That upsets the hierarchy, and that is threatening to Japanese corporate culture. So if you want to keep your job, you drink. When you eliminate the social and you favor the genetic, Asians seem to abuse alcohol 
a lot less than other kinds of people. One of the ways we know that is by studying Asians who grow up in a different culture. Of Asians living in the United States, less than 5% are alcoholics, according to the most recent U.S. government data that I could find. Only 46 of Asians living here in this booze-soaked land of ours, only 4.6% of Asians are alcoholics. That's about half the rate of alcoholism among the rest of us in the U.S. Alcoholism is about 8% among white Americans, African Americans, Hispanics, double that of Asians. Alcoholism is worst in the U.S. among indigenous people. 15% of American Indian and Native Alaskan people are alcoholics. Scientists have looked for a genetic explanation of that phenomenon and mostly come up empty-handed. It's generally thought that the indigenous alcohol problem is mostly the result of social factors, unimaginable cross-generational trauma, lack of meaningful economic opportunities, being stuck in an empty reservation out west or up in Alaska with nothing to do, etc., there may be some genetic predisposition for substance dependence among indigenous Americans, but it's not well established, and it seems to have little, if anything, to do with these alcohol-metabolizing enzymes we've been talking about. Those, we know for sure, strongly affect your chances of becoming an alcoholic. There is a, a particular variant, or allele it's called, a particular variant of the ADH encoding gene that is very prominent among East Asians. Most Han Chinese people have it. Most Japanese people have it. Most Korean people have it. There's one study out of China from 2010 where they determined that the historical spread of this gene that almost all East Asians have they determined that the historical spread of this gene is strongly correlated with the spread of rice cultivation. Like they analyzed genomes across the country and they found a clear east-west gradient where the closer you are to warm, wet, eastern China, where they grow the rice the more likely you are to carry this variant. And this variant explodes in the archaeological record right at the same time when rice cultivation explodes in the archaeological record. Converting to a rice-based diet would have favored people with certain genetic traits. And some of that is already well established. For example, the genes that encode the amylase enzyme that allows you to break starch down into sugar. That'll help you out if you switch from hunting and gathering to eating mostly rice. People who are genetically better at making amylase enzyme would have been able to survive on less grain. And therefore, such people out-survived and out-competed everyone else at the dawn of agriculture when most humans switched to a carbohydrate-based diet, and thus nearly everyone within the sound of my voice right now can metabolize starch just fine. Those of us who couldn't metabolize starch as well didn't make it this far. And that is selection. Natural or unnatural, it doesn't really matter how you categorize it. That's selection pressure. 
Similarly, this particular ADH1B variant seemed to enhance survivability among rice-eating people, and therefore it spread with rice. People with this variant are able to metabolize ethanol much, much faster than everyone else, like a hundred times faster. Once your society starts growing vast quantities of carbohydrates to feed itself, it's only a matter of time until some of those carbs ferment. Rice going to ferment a little bit in storage. You're going to make some fermented products like pickles and bread, and eventually you're going to make proto-sake. People who are genetically able to metabolize and eliminate alcohol quickly may be spared some of the toxic effects and therefore might outcompete people who metabolize alcohol a little more slowly. That is what those scientists think may have happened. But there's another gene involved, another enzyme. The one we've been talking about, ADH enzyme, that breaks ethanol down into acetaldehyde. Acetaldehyde is highly toxic, and it's thought to be directly responsible for many of the ways that alcohol hurts you. Perhaps most of the ways that alcohol hurts you are because of acetaldehyde. You need a second enzyme to swoop in and convert the acetaldehyde into acetate that can enter the citric acid cycle and ultimately be burned by your body for fuel. And that second enzyme is ALDH. About half of East Asians carry a particular variant of the gene that encodes ALDH. And this particular variant kind of does the opposite of what the last one does, right? The last one. There's this nearly ubiquitous variant of the ADH gene that results in most Asians being able to start metabolizing alcohol very, very quickly. That variant effectively enhances the performance of the ADH enzyme that converts ethanol into highly toxic, cancer-causing acetaldehyde. It's also intoxicating. So Asians tend to get drunk faster than other people. Here in the West, we have a stereotype of Asian people as being lightweights, unable to drink very much without losing control or getting sick. This feeds into the much more harmful stereotype that Asian men are somehow unmanly. They aren't tough enough to handle their liquor. Here's why that's bullshit. If the liquor hit me as hard as it hits my Asian friends, well, I'd be under the table after two glasses of wine, too. We're not having different reactions to the same experience. We're having different experiences. My Asian buddy's body is like a hundred times faster at metabolizing ethanol into acetaldehyde, which is the real poison. Our bodies make ALDH enzyme to convert the poison into relatively benign acetate. And about half of East Asians carry a variant of the gene that encodes ALDH. And this variant effectively reduces the performance of the ALDH enzyme. Carriers of this gene are less able to convert acetaldehyde into acetate because their genes encode for less ALDH activity. So 
That means that in about half of the ethnically East Asian population, their bodies are better at converting ethanol into acetaldehyde while being simultaneously worse at converting acetaldehyde into acetate. This is a recipe for the rapid accumulation of acetaldehyde in the body. This is a recipe for the most wicked hangover you can imagine. Not to mention, you know, cancer. Rapid accumulation of acetaldehyde in the body also results in very unpleasant feelings in the short term. This is known as the alcohol flush reaction. Flush in this context refers to blood flushing into your cheeks. You get all red when acetate is first building up inside you. And from there, oh boy, it gets even worse. As more builds up, you feel sick to your stomach. I mean, everybody gets nausea from drinking way too much booze, but people with these genetic variants get sick from just a little alcohol. They might get hives, their blood pressure might drop, their heartbeat might skyrocket to compensate, they might get asthmatic symptoms, and then there is the throbbing headache or straight-up migraine. All the while, you smell like overripe strawberries or something because you have acetaldehyde exploding out of your pores. All of this makes drinking really unpleasant for about half of the East Asian people in this world, which is like a quarter of humanity. Many such people still like to drink, but they can really only have one or maybe two drinks with dinner, or else they start to feel really sick. And this provides a natural disincentive for abuse. Indeed, there is a drug called disulfiram sold under the brand name Antabuse. And this drug is made to inhibit the action of your natural ALDH enzymes to intentionally cause acetaldehyde to build up in your body when you drink so that drinking will feel absolutely awful to you and you'll be less likely to do it. Actually, the dose that people usually take is so powerful that even a tiny amount of booze would cause the patient to vomit violently. Thus, they could not drink to excess even if they wanted to. They wouldn't be able to keep it down. And here is where it is absolutely crucial to consider the difference between occasional low-level alcohol abuse and actual alcoholism. Alcohol is psychologically addictive, just like other psychoactive drugs, but it's also physically addictive, extremely physically addictive. And we should probably do a whole show about the mechanisms of that, but people who treat addiction will tell you that alcohol is right up there with heroin as being one of the very worst drugs to detox from. Like once you've established a physical addiction through chronic abuse, it's not just a matter of deciding to quit. Quitting alcohol cold turkey, which means quitting all at once, that could literally kill you. 
Alcohol depresses the central nervous system activity. It slows down the rate at which your neurons fire and talk to each other, which is why you get really stupid when you drink and you fumble around everywhere because your brain doesn't have enough available bandwidth to coordinate your movements. And over years of drinking like that all the time, your brain learns to compensate for the depressant effect. This is an obscene oversimplification of what's going on, as is pretty much everything else I've said today, but basically, your brain learns to fire off its signals faster to compensate for the alcohol slowing everything down. And that's one reason why alcoholics don't seem drunk a lot of the time. Their brain is compensating. And if they quit drinking abruptly, they find that their brain is now hyperactive because the force that it was that it was competing with the force that it was compensating for is now gone and so the brain overcorrects and you get the dt's delirium tremens also known as the rum fits or seeing pink elephants if you're very physically addicted to alcohol and you go off suddenly you get the dt's uncontrollable shaking mania, hallucinations, pouring sweat, racing heartbeat, skyrocketing body temperature, paranoia, panic, a feeling of imminent grave danger. And if it gets bad enough, you die from a heart attack or some such. The fatality rate for the DTs without treatment is 35%. With treatment, it's 15%. You never want to let it get that bad, which is why you either have to taper off alcohol gradually, which isn't very realistic, or you have to go to a treatment center to detox under the care of professionals. In really bad cases, they might give you benzos to help you taper off alcohol. Benzos work on the brain in a way very similar to alcohol, which is why benzo addiction is also a really big problem. Ask Jordan Peterson about that. Anyway, point is, alcohol addiction is a profoundly powerful force, and people who are severely addicted will drink at all costs, even if it makes them flush in the face and feel really sick. They'll tolerate anything if it means they can keep drinking because they feel like if they stop drinking, they will die. And they're not entirely wrong about that. This genetic variation we're talking about where some people feel terribly sick if they drink, this is not 100% protective against alcoholism. It just makes it so that carriers of those genes have such a bad experience with heavy drinking that they're less likely to ever drink enough to develop a real chemical dependency. And indeed, the smaller number of people who carry not one but two copies of this ALDH2 variant They are virtually completely protected from alcoholism because a tiny amount of booze just wrecks them. So you see virtually zero alcoholism among people carrying two copies of that gene. All of that is why Asians are a lot less likely to develop alcoholism, which is the worst of the alcohol abuse disorders. If you look at lesser levels of abuse, you see some much higher rates among Asians relative to everybody else. But if you look at legit alcoholism, 
It's low among Asians, and this is why. This is also why when Asians do drink, they have a reputation for getting really sloppy and sweaty and having that fruity alcohol smell all over them. That's a stereotype that is grounded in fact. Hashtag not all Asians, but a lot of them. Speaking of stereotypes, how about them Slavs, am I right? Alcoholism by country is worst in Russia and former Eastern Bloc countries, particularly Hungary and Belarus and some of the Balkans. No doubt playing a part would be generational trauma and lack of opportunity. But could genetics be at play as well? Do Slavic people physically respond to alcohol differently than other kinds of white people? This question has been much less studied. Though watching Russia's invasion of Ukraine play out the way that it has, I imagine I'm not the only person who is contemplating this question more than before. There's one study, 2013 study out of the Czech Republic, a mostly West Slavic country, where they directly examined this question. They explicitly said, hey, we're curious why so many Slavs are drunks. We live in a Slavic country, so we're going to start building up some Slav-specific data. They looked at the prevalence of these alcohol metabolism genes among Czech people, and the results were comparable with similar studies of other kinds of white people. So not much illuminating there. There are other genes associated with alcoholism that are less studied and less understood. So there may yet be something going on among Eastern Europeans or Native Americans that we don't know about. There's a guy in Scotland, uh, Dr. Alastair McKenzie, who has been studying the gallinin gene as it relates to addiction and overeating and anxiety and depression. We should just get him on the pod sometime, but I will try now to obscenely simplify his findings. Galanin is a neuropeptide that does a bunch of important jobs in the brain, most of which are probably not known yet. But one thing galanin seems to do is regulate appetite and thirst and such in the hypothalamus. There's a particular variant of the galanin gene very prevalent among Europeans that may make us European people crave certain things extra hard, particularly booze and fatty food. Dr. McKenzie speculates that such a craving may have conferred a survivability advantage in places with long, harsh winters, where you need to store more fat on your body to survive the winter, where you need to store more food in your home to survive the winter. One of the best ways to preserve food for the winter is with fermentation, which results in alcohol. So, this variant of the Galanin gene may help explain higher rates of alcoholism and obesity among European people or certain European subgroups. We don't really know yet, but the fun thing for us Europeans is that the same genetic variation is associated with anxiety and depression. So in this aspect, at least, us whites may be specially evolved to be fat and drunk and miserable. Hey, how about Africa? 
alcoholism is pretty low in Africa. But this is why it's almost always incredibly stupid to think of Africa as being all one place. It's really two separate continents, at least. North Africa has almost no alcoholism. Sub-Saharan Africa has a fair bit of alcoholism, though it's not nearly as bad as Eastern Europe and the United States. Indeed, according to some studies, full-blown alcoholism is actually a little lower among African-Americans as compared to Euro-Americans. And most African-Americans are descended from sub-Saharan Africa, where alcoholism does exist, it's just usually not as bad as it is in, say, the U.S. Why is there almost no alcoholism in North Africa? Is there something genetic going on there? Maybe. But surely it's mostly social, right? North Africa is Muslim. Alcohol is strictly forbidden in Islam and is strongly stigmatized in Islamic society. That doesn't mean that all Muslims abstain. But the only Muslim countries with non-negligible documented drinking problems are former Soviet states and Turkey, which is partially European. There may be something going on genetically with Arab or Persian people that protects them somewhat against alcoholism, but I can't find anything in the literature. If, on the other hand, you look at East Africa, also a heavily Islamic part of the world with very low alcoholism, East Africans carry a unique variant of the ADH1B gene that has the same effect as the East Asian variant. It makes alcohol make you feel really terrible. It's the same effect, but this seems to be an independent evolution of such a gene variant in East Africa, though nobody knows how prevalent it is among actual East African people. This is an understudied population. Pretty much all populations of the world are understudied, except for Northeast Asians, Europeans, and residents of the richer European settler states, like the U.S. That's really who we know a lot about. Everybody else, we don't really know what's going on with you, really. But here's one thing we do know. Genetics are strongly predictive of whether a person will have a problem with booze. And so if you needed any more convincing that addiction is a medical problem requiring a medical solution, I really don't know what else to tell you. When I look at alcoholics, legit alcoholics, I don't look down on them or anything. I think there but for the grace of God go I. I'm honestly kind of surprised that I'm not an alcoholic. In another timeline, where my life didn't go as fabulously well as my life has gone, mostly thanks to you, dear internet community, maybe I would be an alcoholic. If I were a salaryman in Japan, I might be an alcoholic, with my boss insisting that I get blackout drunk with the team every weeknight. Remember... It's something like 50% genetic factors, 50% environmental factors. Nature can overcome nurture and vice versa. But I reckon one reason I'm not an alcoholic is simply that I am my mother's son. My lily-white Germanic mother absolutely loves a cocktail here and there, maybe a hard cider 
or as the Brits would say, cider. But that's really all she can do. If she has two cocktails, her face goes red and she feels awful. The genes for alcohol flush reaction do occur in a small number of white people. I would guess my mother is one of them and I am part mom. I don't know this, but I suspect drinking makes me feel physically worse than it makes other people feel. I get all puffy and my feet swell up really bad. Got that one directly from mom. Once the initial euphoric phase of the buzz has worn off, I just feel a little sick and swollen and permanently thirsty and headachy. None of these feelings are rare, but I suspect I may have them in greater than normal abundance because of my mom. And because every time I've been going through a really rough patch of my life where I drank a lot, the thing that always stopped me from drinking even more was that I just felt too bad to drink. To this day, if I do more than two or three consecutive nights of drinking until drunk, I just feel too bad, and I'll be repulsed by the idea of alcohol for weeks after. My best guess to explain this about myself is that I carry some gene from mom that slightly inhibits my ALDH enzyme or something so that I get a I get a somewhat higher than normal buildup of acetaldehyde when I drink. And because of that, booze makes me feel bad while it's also making me feel good. Other people pretty much just feel good when they drink, and that gets dangerous real fast. Some people might not really want to hear that. It's uncomfortable to think that our personalities are not some immortal soul, but rather our personalities are just the net total of bags of chemicals in our skulls. Tweak one nucleotide sequence in the bag and the whole personality changes. That's an uncomfortable thought, accurate as it might be. I think it makes us uncomfortable because it makes us feel small, but also because it makes us feel like we're not in control Predestination is a terrible thing to imagine, be it divine predestination or genetic predestination. I suppose some people like to believe that someone else is driving their car, but man, I don't. I want to be in control of my life and my actions, and I want to be able to assume that other people are in control of their actions, because I want to be able to hold them accountable for their actions. If we're all just at the mercy of the sloshing bag of chemicals in our skulls, then there is no crime, only disease. That's an idea that is very destabilizing to society as presently construed. Surely human behavior results from a combination of predisposition and the exercise of free will. But the distinction between those two things is one of the oldest problems in the study of philosophy. The guy who seasons his cutting board is not going to shed any new light on this one today, so I'd better quit while I'm ahead. I suppose I should end on a serious note and say that if you or someone you love is struggling with alcoholism, there is a world of people who have studied this problem their whole lives 
They understand that it's a medical problem, not a character flaw. And they have so many ways of helping you. Their whole job is to help you. They have one job. Here in the U.S., we have the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They have a website and a hotline where you can find the treatment center nearest you. It's linked in the description. If you have insurance, you could just call the number on your insurance card, ask them what services are covered and from where. Obamacare requires insurance companies to cover substance abuse treatment in some way. Probably the best place to start is just with your primary care doctor. Tell them the truth. Tell them you're ready to change. Today is always a good day to start making good choices, no matter what happened yesterday. Talk to you next time.